This is episode number 283. How to be in the current moment, yet leave the legacy of intercultural creativity with Janine Hetford. Welcome. My name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Odds podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your false potential. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to make a few quick announcements. First one being an invitation to our upcoming weekly conversation that takes place every single Friday at 10.45 a.m. Central Time, hosted through LinkedIn Live and Facebook Live, where we explore the connection between one's personal narrative and the topics of grief, resilience, gratitude, appreciation, and many other topics. If this is of interest to you, please consider joining us on any given Friday at 10.45 a.m. Central Time or searching any of the previous conversations through our archive on YouTube by simply searching Overcoming Odds where you'll be able to find a complete directory of all the conversations that we've had to this particular point. The second announcement that I wanted to make is in regard to our work, and that is if our work has had any form of impact in your life, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google, or supporting our cause by making a contribution through our website at overcomingodds.today. Now, let's get back to the show. Janine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Absolutely. And I, I also got to thank Scott Mason for introducing the two of us. And I feel like it's been a repeated theme on this show, many, many episodes. And that's Scott introducing me to someone. And I just, <laughs> I, I always appreciate the introductions he makes because him and I, I feel like we've been so aligned for many, many months as far as the work that he's doing and everything that we're trying to accomplish through this. So I just I'm always grateful to him. And he's just, uh, He's quite the quite the human being. I, I haven't found a way to summarize him in a sentence. And I don't know if you have necessarily. <laughs> well, in, in my career, in, in my work, we call them boundary writers, you know, our bridge builders. So they're the people <laughs> in the middle of different cultural groups that can really make those connections. And uh, yeah. he definitely is a boundary writer and a bridge builder. Yeah, he's he's done an exceptional job at it. And I think part of it, I remember having a conversation with him I've been really curious as far as, because it seems like it's a pattern for some people to do it naturally. And for Mm -hmm. others, it's a learned behavior or learned skill to connect the dots, to connect people of different paths, and especially connect situations where you feel, you think that the paths don't align, but yet they do somehow. And so finding that common ground, it's always fascinating me as far as how people are able to do it. But I think it's, it's somewhat actually a direct segue into the theme in the episode that you and I were going to discuss, and it's around this concept of creativity. And the way that I wanted to start was maybe with a little bit of your own personal experience. And that is, when did you begin to realize that you were a creative? And what were the things that you've had within your life that maybe prevented you from seeing that particular lens to begin with? Well, it has certainly been a journey. 
I started my life and still do as with a speech impediment. I stuttered. I went through speech therapy for many years in my youth. And I even have a twin sister who speaks very well, won speech debates, and, and she's an amazing person. But just, you know, having that, that juxtaposition of trying to find your voice. And communication is so key for people. It, it allows you to share ideas and to find your place in the world. And so when you're communication is is a, a liability basically it really does a number on your creative identity how you see yourself and how you show up and so I really had to battle that and it, it really wasn't until my adulthood that I came to grips of fact about the fact that I stutter this is how I speak how do I reframe it how do I shift perspectives and see this now as a superpower as opposed to a liability. And I tell people the journey from the speech therapy room to the TEDx stage is one that helped become the woman that I, I am today and helped me finally see that my ideas have value and that I am creative and I can communicate them even though it may take me a while to do so. They still have value. How do you, I've been trying to understand this for quite some time. How does stuttering actually develop? Is that something that happens at birth? Because I've also heard situations where certain people who have experienced different, it sounds like that there are different levels of stutter as well, who have experienced it in their late 50s, in their late 20s. Some people were born with it. So I'm trying to understand where does that, what triggers that to begin with? There's different fact factors. For some people, it is a trait. If you look, there's a documentary out there called The Way We Talk, and he talks about, uh, he did research, you know, is it on the gene? My father actually stuttered, even though uh, in a, through adulthood, he worked through some things and his speech became more, more fluent. There's some people because of childhood trauma, it may tr trigger it. Uh, there's some people that may, like you said, uh, acquire some, some type of blocks or repetitive words or just different uh, speaking difficulties later on in life. And so there's different levels of stuttering. There's, you know, severe, as you can hear, um, I grew up with a more severe stuttering, but because of speech therapy, because of Toastmasters where I met uh, Scott, or because of the reason why I, I met Scott, I had to really work at a lot of things. And now I'm a global speaker. And even though I, deal, I do still stutter every now and then, it definitely wasn't as severe as it was in my childhood. So the answer to your question is there's different reasons for it for different people, but it can be genetic as well. What did you end up doing during speech therapy that helped you get to the point that you are today? A lot of breathing. There's a lot of mental skills or, or mental tricks that I do even now. You know, there's a lot of word choice. There's a lot of phrasing. I don't, there's a cartoon where uh, I think that the pig would would start to come out and say a phrase and then he'll totally switch the, the phrase that he'll say so he can say it smoother. So, I mean, it, it's cute there, but that's what, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've done. There's a lot of uh, just, you know, yeah, sound practicing, uh, consonants. A lot of people have uh, issues with stuttering with, with vowels. And so um, different people have different, you know, blocks and issues and the speech therapist is trained to see where your greatest need, needs are and so that that does does help do you find that stressful situations bring up the stuttering a lot more or is it other like what are the triggers that you find yourself that okay here it is i'm noticing it now and then situations where you don't notice it at all 
I will say, you know, someone asked me, Janine, if you could be born without your stutter and speak fluently from day one, would you do it? And of course, your initial reaction is yes, of course, because you <laughs> think of all the trauma and all of the angst and all of the, the hard times that you had. But I asked myself, would I be the woman I am today if I did not have that struggle? And the reason why I say that is because stuttering really increased my emotional intelligence. It really made me observant of my surroundings and people and the cadence. I have a music background as well. I've been in music since fourth grade and the trumpet basically was my voice until I was able to get fluent in my own speaking voice. And it really helped me communicate among other ways. And so, mm. you know, to answer your quest question, um, I just had to be aware. And so public speaking is difficult for a lot of people, even if they don't stutter, right? Even mm. if they don't have a speech impediment, I think it's the number one feared <laughs> activity ab above death, right? Uh, people would rather be giving the, be, be in the box than giving the eulogy, they, they say. And um, what I've known is to be very observant of my emotional reactions to certain situations. Uh, I, there's a lot of positive self-talk. There's a lot of naming of emotions. And so one thing that helped me when I did my TED talk is you can say, okay, I'm nervous. I'm very nervous to go out there on the red dot. Or you can say, I'm very excited. The physical reactions are the same. Heart mm -hmm. palpitations, sweating glands, uh, dilated pu uh, pupils, your physical reactions are the same for nervousness, um, being scared and being excited, but it's all how you label it. So I started taking control on how I label events and that helped my ability to be more in control of, uh, you know, breathing correctly, word choice, speaking fluently, and just, it's a symphony of all these actions together that helped me play the song I'm supposed to, to play. That is fascinating. I, I've had a similar experience. There are two things that you mentioned that I find interesting. The first is the fear of public speaking over death. I mean, I can relate to that in many different ways. In fact, I remember from the probably somewhat relatively young age where I was 14, 15, 16 years old, the number of times that I would literally find some sort of plan B, emergency, abort, abort situation when I would go into restaurants and I had to place an order. <laughs> whether it was with my parents or with my friends and all the people that were surrounding you. And I kid you not, I would always find a way to go to the bathroom, tell them <laughs> the order in advance so they can place it. Part of it had to do with the fear of public speaking, the fear of making a mistake, mispronouncing certain words, because I'm sure as you can relate, sometimes you go into restaurants and it's not always as simple as chicken and noodles it's chicken plus some other word that you may not have heard of before, some sort of sauce. And, and it's just, that was, that was a big thing that I had to work through throughout my life. And so I, I can definitely relate to people who find that, who find a great fear in the ability to speak. And the other thing that I find interesting that you mentioned is this concept of symphony, everything working together. I was in a school band, I think leading up to eighth grade, I used to play the clarinet. And I can relate to much of what you said as far as that was my voice for uh, two to three years until I was able to get comfortable with this particular voice. But I find it interesting how it really is a matter of many things having to come together and not necessarily that one thing. And I also wonder if that's just maybe a cultural thing that is experienced, whether it's in the US or other countries where 
there is that tendency that if we just solve that one thing, we'll solve the rest of life. When really it's what I've learned is that it's solving that one thing, but it's also working on that other aspect and then another aspect, which kind of goes back to a conversation that we started with, creative. And, and I'm thinking about it and I'm curious to hear from you, what does it actually mean for you to be a creative? How do you even define that particular term? That is a great, great question and still up for debate in many circles, correctly. Um, my, my background is in psychology and education, but I say I, I have a street degree in neuroscience because I've been <laughs> fascinated by neuroscience when I was in college in the late 90s and doing uh, just studies with my professors in and out of MRIs. And now, uh, 20 years later, I'm on the other side of the neuroscience. I'm implementing the, the findings and saying, okay, well, what's going on in the brain? What does it mean to be creative? And what does it mean to be interculturally competent as well? And so I'm on a big push of redefining that term. First of all, a lot of people think creativity is only artistry. So they're saying out loud, I'm not creative. I'm not creative because they can't sing, they can't dance, they can't draw, they can't paint. They're not excellent in, in a particular art form. So they automatically put themselves in the non-creative. Your subconscious is, is recording all of this. And so if your subconscious is, is hearing that you're not creative, it's telling your brain, don't be creative. Don't even try to be creative in any field. And so we need to re-shift that myth, that myth and, and dismantle that. Creativity can be found in all areas. And I'm proposing, this is my definition of creativity, that creativity is the process of problem finding and problem solving with relevance, value, and novelty. To me, that is creativity. Highly creative people in any field doing any type of activity, they're not just waiting for problems to fall in their lap. They're out there being curious. They're, they're aware and they're observant and they're able to um, connect the dots, right? The relevancy and create new ideas. And so a lot of your cognitive creative functions are like divergent thinking, reframing, unobvious associations, which you were talking about at the beginning of our talk about people who are able to make these connections. Um, are, some people are kind of born with it and other people have to grow its skill. And um, just, you know, metaphorical thinking and uh, translation thinking. And so why I say creativity isn't only the arts, the arts are very important to help build your creativity skills in non-arts areas, in business, entrepreneurship, science, and what have you. So that is how I am defining creativity moving on. What do you think those arts help you develop as far as, for example, if you're not particularly interested in some of these things like drawing, singing, dancing, what have you noticed from your own experience that those particular, I guess you could say arts or elements of art helps you develop in other areas of life? Sure. It is. I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking about writing a book about this because it's so <laughs> profound and, and it's so This could be the first chapter to it all. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but it's so important to restructure our relationship with the arts. First of all, a lot of people think, hey, why are you studying music in you know, elementary school? You're not going to be a musician or whatever. And the reason why arts are paramount for people, just humans, number one, because we're human and it's a gift for us to just, it, it's expressive gift. But the other thing is it fine tunes your ability for these skills in non-creative areas, like I just said. So here's an example. There's a man by the name of George Washington Carver. He's a great inventor in, the, in America in the late 1800s. He was actually born in slavery. He was born 1865 before the war was ended. And he started painting. 
and he was in nature and then he played music and he was just very entrepreneurial. And for him to become one of the best inventors, he had a, amazing inventions for the peanut and other, other crops and he helped just, just America and the presidency and other and Gandhi and other leads of other countries figure out what to do with their ag agricultural plans. And his creativity was through the roof in science, right? Bot botany, but he attributes a lot of it because the painting was there and the painting caused him to see detail. Uh, Van Gogh talks about, about this. Um, uh, Georgia O'Keeffe talks about this, that it takes time to see. And so for them to really commit that time to paint, they had to push through the normal, just recognizing something going and observe. Observe means to attend to. It comes from the Latin. It means to attend to. What are you giving your attention to? And so the music background he had and the, the painting background he had helped him be a better botanist and inventor. The next example I'll get before I stop is um, Adam Grant in his book, Originals, how, how you know, great people um, move the world and transform the world. They looked at the top Nobel Prize winners in science. Most of them, a lot of them had an arts background. Why? Because those art backgrounds helps you train the skills you need for creative thinking in non-arts areas. Observation, um, empathy, uh, translation, moving one idea to another. When you were playing your clarinet and you were moving a musical I I idea from one way, and then you can talk about it with your language in another way. That's called translation. And so divergent thinking, perspective shifting, all of these elements we need to be great creative thinkers are found inherently in the arts. I also found that in addition to the clarinet, one of the other things that I used to do when I was younger and still do to a degree is drawing. And I mm -hmm. found that now that you can think, now that you made me think about this concept of translating amongst different mediums or forms mm -hmm. in drawing, oftentimes, at least my experience, what it comes down to is drawing beyond the boundaries. You know, a, a painting doesn't necessarily have four corners to follow it's more so kind of whatever comes or whatever flows through you, that's what ends up being on that sheet of paper or canvas. And I wonder how much of a skill that really is to be able to transform the boundaries in, in situations where you feel like it's only four corners and it can't be anything else to all of a sudden just drawing a little bit beyond that and thinking that it could be many other things and, and really just thinking about it. So it's, it's fascinating that you bring that up. And, and I'm curious to hear as far as your own maybe techniques or day-to-day -day routines, how do you continue to reignite that curiosity, especially in moments where you feel like that curiosity is not there? Well, I, I will attach it to what you just said of, of redefining the boundaries. You know, there's a great study that shows how when kids enter the school system, they're at 98% of their creative gen genius. But when they leave the school system, they're about at 10 or 12% of the creative genius. And when they hit about 30 years old, they did another study with just adults. And about 2% were holding on to that creative genius thinking ability. So you have to ask yourself why. Why? Because the school system and other forms of cultural training really establishes that boundary and don't leave the boundary. Do what I say. One plus one is two. There's no other alternative. And so we are indoctrinated with just this one way of thinking. And so companies, organizations, 
are going to be looking as we head into this new shift in leadership and this new uh, rebuilding, reimagining what work looks like, right? The future of work. We're going to look for people who know how to break those boundaries, who know how to think expressively, expansively, and utilize their imagination to go to places where no one has gone before. And the first step is shaking that. And that's um, the arts can help you do that. Putting yourself in, in new situations can help you do that because it's shaking your brain's comfort and schema um, for format. And so when you put yourself into a new situation that you have no schema for, you have no, no um, you know, set order for, it, it heightens your observation. It heightens your, your sense of awareness and it heightens, or hopefully it heightens your curiosity. And so I, you know, I actually have training with, with my company, Cafe Strategies, where we look at how do you develop these skills? And that's another myth that people think that creativity, you're just born with it. You either have it or you don't. Mm -hmm. Cre cre creative thinking is a skill, just like basketball hoop throwing is a skill. The more you do it, the better you, you get. And so you can get better at your curious um, skills by looking at what curiosity is, how you're interacting with the observations that you're bringing in to, to, to your, your data systems and, um, and what boundaries are there. Are you aware of them and are you able to dismantle them? Which elements of curiosity do you think are not possible to learn? if that's even a thing. You come here, you're, you're already you're like, you come to the earth with them. <laughs> I don't know if you have any younger siblings or, or nieces and nephews, but if you watch a one, two, three-year-old, they're there. They, they interact with, um, they have something called functional uh, agil agility. The older you get, if you're not mindful about holding on to your creative capacity, the older you get, you get into a functional fixedness, which is your ability to see an object and your inability to go past the original use of that object. So, you know, basically, you know, this is a, a pen, right? It's a pen to me. You and I recognize it as a pen and I write with it. But to my three-year-old son, and so I'm, I have a case study in my own house, right? It's a drumstick. It's a microphone. It's a, a, a lever. You know, it, he looks at the agility of the object and his brain doesn't ossify him into one function. And so one way that we can increase our curiosity and increase our creativity is to work on our functional fix fixedness. And there's different things that you can do to become more agile. And they actually, there's actually research out there that said people who are more functionally agile do better in organizational work teams because they're able to look at things with different perspectives, alternative so solutions, and make those unobvious associations and those new functions of things that we only thought could be used one, one way. Mm -hmm. Is there a correlation between, and, and this could be complete tangent from the conversation that we've had to this point, but <laughs> is there a correlation between cre creativity and lifespan as far as those that are more creative? Have there been studies that they find mm -hmm. ways to live longer? I know it's not necessarily health related or anything like that, mm -hmm. but in a way, I mean, it, it is. It, it's it, it continuing is. to find ways mm -hmm. for your brain to find new pathways and to mm -hmm. develop better activity when it comes to problem solving and managing stress and all of these other, what are perceived to be complex situations from day to day. Yes, yes, there's a few um, 
wonderful studies out there. There's one that I even, there's a study about the, just being around create the creativity of others. So they went into a convalescent home and brought a kindergarten class into the convalescent home. And so they had, the kindergarten class had their own space and the, the older elders could look at them through the window and just observe them. And then during certain times during the day, they can actually interact with them and play with them and, and um, create relationships with them. And the health of the elder skyrocketed, you know, life expands skyrocketed. And even within your own self, there is a correlation that if you, you know, I call it um, dying of a broken heart. How many people have, have left the earth with the broken sense of, of they wanted to, to see their ideas come to fruition. They wanted to be in a place to be creative and to even know that they could be creative, but because of cultural situations or social situations, what have you, they they weren't able to manifest their creativity. That does a role on your your physical health, your mental health, your emotional health, all of it, it's all connected. And so, you know, when we talk about these well-being programs, and that's why I'm so adamant about understanding what creativity is and how culture and creativity come together and affect one another, because overall it does affect your well-being, your ability to connect with yourself, connect with others, and connect with nature as a whole. Nature is a big source of creative thinking as well. How do you personally process that? How do you process the fact that one day you're going to leave this planet and you may or may not have had the opportunity to express all of the ideas that you wanted to? That's a deep question. <laughs> and um, I, but a question that I have thought about, as, especially as I continue this work, one person that I think of is Maya Angelou. And I tell people when Maya Angelou passed, passed, passed away in, uh, a few years ago, in 2017 or so, I wasn't sad. And here's why I wasn't sad. Because that is the epitome of a life well lived, right? Mm-hmm. We know we're not gonna be here for 500 years. That would be ludicrous for anyone to, to say that. If you get a, a hundred years um, in the right mind, then you're, you're, you know, you're among the, the longer, longer lived ones. And so the reason why I say it's a life well lived is because she left it all on the table. Her ups, her downs, she, she was creative in her, her books. Her videos, she produced movies, she was an activist for civil rights. Any passion that caught her her fancy and that really made her think and create, she zoned in on. And she didn't just think about it and just do it for herself. She left it in platform so it can continue to educate and inspire future generations. So if I wanted to, to hear from her, I have her signed book in my library now. I can go on YouTube and watch videos from her. I can see her plays, see her films, right? Mm-hmm. So she, what does it mean to be alive? Because if you look at someone who's in a hospital who is uh, currently um, like in a coma, they're unable to communicate, Correct. Mm-hmm. And so to be alive means you have brain function, right? And you're able to communicate your ideas. And so Maya Angelou is, is gone physically. Her body is no longer here, but are, are her ideas here? Are her ideas still doing what they're supposed to do? They're communicating encouragement, um, wisdom, men- mentorship. So to me, she's not even dead. She's still alive because her creativity is still alive. And so that's how I process it. Janine, what are you doing now while I'm still physically in my body so my ideas can still keep working even after my physical body is no longer here? Mm -hmm. Would you say in a way that is a sense of legacy? 
Yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And, you know, my, my father passed uh, it right before the pandemic hit in 2019. And he wrote a book. And of course, when you have a parent pass or someone who you're responsible pass, you have to go through all of their stuff, you know, their finances and things like that and, and have closure in all these areas. And so I wrote a blog called We Talk About Financial Inheritance, right? Mm-hmm. But what about creative in- inheritance? Like, what are you leaving as your creative inheritance for the next generation. So like his book is still on Amazon, you know, it's still giving what it's supposed to, to give. That's his creative inheritance. And so when I write my books now, I'm writing one with, with my three-year-old son called I Am Creative by Sean T. Letford. Um, yes, he'll be a published author. Cause you know why? I want him during his formative years, your formative years are the most crucial years of a human being's life. During his formative years, I want him to understand that I'm a creative. I create. Like if I have an idea, I can put it in a book. Just because I'm three doesn't mean I can't be an, an author. Like who said that? Who said you have to be an adult to be an author, right? And so it that's breaking down the boundaries, right? Breaking down the limits that some person put up years ago that we don't know why we're operating by these rules that don't that shouldn't apply to us so um so yeah he's every year he's going to be writing a book putting it on amazon for 99 cents i don't care what it is i don't care if just his grandmother buys it that's okay i am creating the concept right the construct in his mind that i create and i share my ideas with the world yeah there's a book that I, I shared with you prior to us hitting the record button that I'm reading right now called uh, Vagabonding, which is for those that are not familiar, it's this concept of about long-term travel. And there's a chapter in it where he literally talks about how so much of travel or so much of life, travel through life, so to speak, has to do with breaking down one's own limitations. Mm-hmm. And I think what you just described as far as doing that with your son it's phenomenal to see that because of exactly the reasons that you just stated. As I aged, I've noticed myself, and I don't know if you've noticed yourself do this or anyone else that's listening right now, how many times I would find myself setting certain limitations based on someone else's opinions and based on someone else's experience of life, only having to sit there with them and really think to myself, why can't I do this? Why can't this be accomplished? Just like you said, why can't you write a book as a three-year-old? Why do you have to wait till you're 30? Why can't you do certain things until you reach 50 years old that all of a sudden you don't have access to maybe when you're 10? And I find that to be fascinating how so much of life, at least in my opinion, truly becomes about how do you take in the information surrounding you and process it in the way that makes sense to you and then can be formed into some form of action, some form of creativity. You you mentioned being creative. I think one of the biggest things that I personally learned when it comes to being a creative, it's understanding that there is a difference between a fact, opinion, and also your own interpretation of the two Mm -hmm. and, and what you choose to do with it. And I found myself that prior to this, there were so many limits that I was setting upon myself as a creative, where in a way I was probably limiting my own creative ability. And that is huge. And that really is a lot of the, the foundational work that I'm 
trying to present to the world is with intercultural creativity, you have to understand that there's different cultures. There's a lot of cultures within inside of you. So not just the demographical, you know, you see me, you see a, a woman, a woman of African descent, you know, um, a mid, you know, late thirties or early forties, you see these demographical factors. But do you see the internal cult cultures, you know, like me dealing with the speech impediment and, and the limitations that that could place on someone or, you know, people, some people are shy, some people are outgoing, extrovert, in, introvert. There's all these cultural factors going on. And so when people bring employees and onboard employees into their organization and then they say, OK, everybody be creative. You have people at so many different levels of creative confidence, right? And then you have something that I'm coining creative ab abuse or creative trauma, where I've met adults who say, you know what, I, I did something creative or I sang a song or I submitted an essay and it was ridiculed or they told me that, you know, never sing in public again or, or never um, submit this creative idea or this invention again. And I just never did it again. And so you have 30 year olds who are not doing things because of something that happened 20 years ago. And they carried that with them into your organization that now organizations are going to need the creative uniqueness, right? The, the something that Nilifer Merchant from the Harvard Business Review, she calls the onlyness of you, that you are a mixture of experiences and a unique point of view that only you can provide the organization. But if you have creative trauma or abuse that are that's stumping this from coming to be, you lose out, the organization loses out, and in the end, our nation, our world loses out as well. Mm. Tell us a little bit more about how can people connect with you and then some of the things that you mentioned as far as what do you have coming up within your work that people can be a part of? Sure. Well, I am an educator by heart, so I'm always teaching. So if you follow me on social media, you're going to learn something. And I have a unique perspective about a lot of things. So I have people responding to me like, oh, I never thought of it that way. Or, oh, wow, I like your your way of coming at this. So um, and I, I use my, my son, uh, not use my son, but my son and I partner together to teach <laughs> together. He just He's just a three-year-old. I'm the one at looking at him and then teaching through what he's doing, right? And saying, hey, be aware of this. So I am at uh, Janine Let Letford, G-E-N-E-I-N, Letford, L-E-T-F-O-R-D, and all those. And then my company social media is Cafe Strategies, C-A-F-F-E, two Fs, Strategies. And we, um, we're a training corporation, an educational training corporation that looks at revitalizing the intercultural creative skills with people. So how do you have those DEI, you know, inclusive belonging skills for pe pe people that's needed? Cultural competency is cultural competency is needed to create a culture of belonging and inclusion. But how does that overlap with the creative thinking skills? So you can actually develop both of those together because they sit upon the same cog cognitive skills. And so we just have tons of trainings coming up. We uh, have uh, key keynotes, you know, we, we, we keynote, I'll be keynoting the NERA conference, which is the largest HR association in the nation. In October, I'll be keynoting the K-12 superintendents conference in December. And so really looking to revolutionize HR, to revolutionize K-12 curriculum, right? And to make sure this is embedded, this new way of thinking is embedded in the way we teach our children and train our adults.
Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. If you haven't done so already, consider subscribing to our future episodes so you can receive all of the latest content. Also, if you like what you heard, consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can find these inspiring and courageous conversations. Once again, we thank you for listening and we look forward to having you next time.